0: I'm up here again this week because Pastor Brandon is at this very moment preaching for our brothers and sisters over at First Free. And since their church is also in Matthew, Pastor Brandon and I got to prep our sermons together this week, which was a lot of fun. Folks, we got a great passage today. If you could turn with me there now, we are in Matthew 26, starting in verse 57 and going all the way through the end of the chapter. (coughs) Our text today covers the first part of Jesus' trial, and if you have spent any time in the church, this is a familiar story. The events of Easter, the story of Passion Week, is something that most churches take the time to revisit each and every year, and it's the same for us here at the Bridge, because folks, Easter is what it's all about. Christ's death and resurrection form the very core of our faith. And so texts like the one we're looking at today are well worth revisiting. But unfortunately, one of the side effects of hearing something over and over and over again is that it can become familiar or old hat, taken for granted. And it can be easy to miss the full weight of what's going on. Folks, today I want us to bear that weight. I want us to sit in this passage. To to feel all the, the grief, the sorrow, the pain, the indignation, the outrage that you would feel if you had heard about an innocent man who was tried and convicted on a baseless charge. If you had read the court transcripts and saw plain as day that the judge and jury considered no evidence, that they had come in with their minds made up if you watched a recording of what happened afterwards, uh, of the abuse and brutalization of a man at the hands of supposedly respectable citizens. I want you to feel all of that as we read. I want this text to hit deep. But then after all that, I want us to do something that might not be our first impulse. Because our gut reaction, our first impulse, when we see injustice is to ask ourselves, how can we keep this from ever happening again? What can we do to stop evil men like this from using and abusing power? What changes need to be made to prevent such a massive failure of the legal system? And folks, these are good questions to ask, don't get me wrong. These are right impulses. But today, we're going to direct our eyes away from the court away from the unjust men, from the system. And we're going to look instead to the accused, to the one on trial. And then we're going to ask ourselves the question that I believe the book of Matthew wants us to ask ourselves. What will we do when our trial comes? What will we do? How will we respond when it looks like evil has the upper hand? So with that bridge, Could you please stand for the reading of God's Word from Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered, and Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking a false testimony against Jesus, I put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward, at last two came forward, and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ son of God Jesus said to him you said so but I tell you from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven then the high priest tore his robes and said he has uttered blasphemy what further witnesses do you need you have now heard his blasphemy what is your judgment they answered he deserves death." and then they spit in his face and struck him After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. To understand what's going on in today's passage, to figure out why these people are doing this to Jesus, we have to do a little bit of background, just a quick history lesson. Stay with me. There's a few things you got to know. First off, you need to know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jerusalem was in a very tense spot. It was the Passover, the biggest festival of the year so big that it's estimated the population of the city swelled to five times its regular amount. Imagine Wichita with 2.5 million people. All the hotels were full. Out-of-town family was crashing on every couch. People had come from all over to celebrate the festival, and folks, it was a bomb ready to blow because the Jews were not happy. See, it had been almost 100 years since the Romans had come in and conquered Israel, and and they were still, after 100 years, still calling the shots. And with every passing year, the Jews were growing more and more fed up. People started, started to talk about what they could do about it. And the one thing that everyone kept hoping for was a Messiah, a king, A man sent from God to drive out Israel's enemies. Every Jewish parent would have told their kids stories about this Messiah. Tales about what would happen when God finally sent his king. Things like what we read in 1 Chronicles 17. Talking to David, God says, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. God tells Israel that he's going to send a king, a man who would be so close to God, That he'd be like God's own son, a son of God. A man who would build a house for God, a temple. A man whose throne would be established forever. No more Romans, no more humiliation, no more. Not when God sends us the Messiah, the son of God. You know what? There have been rumors about a man, a guy called Jesus, who some think might just be the one. People are thinking, okay, this is it, it's going to go down. And some people were getting ready to fight. We saw that last week. The Messiah is about to start the revolution. And all of this is making the leaders of the Jews nervous. Because they know that Rome is watching. And if the Romans begin to think that the Jews are trying to start something, or well, they're going to come in, and they're going to th- make things much worse than they already are. And so it's up to Israel's leaders to stop this fire, to put it out, before it gets out of control, to nip it in the bud. There's only one way they can make sure that that happens. They have to kill this so-called Messiah. They have to kill Jesus, which brings us to today's passage, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward. Jesus has been arrested on the charge that he claims to be the Messiah. And he's been rushed to a late night trial. It's like 8, 9 o'clock. And this is not just any trial. Jesus is standing here before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish Supreme Court. I mean, the the news has been all about the Supreme Court this last week, but this was their Supreme Court. And it's, it's in the house of their chief justice, their leader, Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, for the most part, this Jewish court was allowed to manage most of the affairs of the Jewish people. But they were not allowed to put anyone to death. Only the Romans could do that. And so, in today's passage, this Jewish court has one job. They have to charge Jesus with treason. They have to prove that he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. They have to show the Romans that this man is a revolutionary, a threat to Roman rule, a danger to the status quo. And, folks, this is no fair trial. This was a kangaroo court. They knew exactly what the sentence would be before they even saw a witness. The text tells us that they were seeking witnesses so they could put him to death. They'd already made up their minds, but they couldn't just make up the evidence. They still needed a witness. In fact, they needed at least two. Two witnesses whose stories lined up. Because if they didn't, the Romans would call it a mistrial. And then the case would be thrown out and everyone would be back at square one. So the hours that pass by and witness after witness comes to the stand and no one can agree on a charge that sticks until at last two come forward with some pretty incriminating allegations. Verse 61. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? This is the ticket. This is how they're going to get Jesus. Because it's bad enough that he says he's going to destroy the temple, the the center of the Jewish faith. That's enough to condemn him in the Jewish eyes. But Jesus also claims that he can rebuild it in just three days. Now, this isn't just some audacious claim to power. Jesus isn't just flexing his construction skills. This is nothing less than a claim to be the Messiah. Because remember, the Messiah, the Son of God, is someone who's going to build the temple. In the book of John, chapter 2, Jesus says this. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And look at how the people respond. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What this passage from John tells us is that while this witness is technically true, while, while these two witnesses did in fact hear Jesus talking about destroying and rebuilding the temple, they, they didn't really understand, they didn't understand it the way that Jesus meant it. How did Jesus mean it? Well, what is a temple, guys? A temple is a meeting place between God and man. And folks, there is no greater temple, no more profound meeting place of God and man than Christ's body. Jesus wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about a better kind of temple, his body. And he wasn't talking about burning down a building and then putting it back up. He was talking about his imminent death, burial, and resurrection. Brothers and sisters, when I talk about the church, when when we talk about the church, I do not mean this building, as beautiful as it is, This is is not the temple of God. Brothers and sisters, Christ's body is the temple of God. And, And who is Christ's body? Where two or more are gathered. Where you and I are. We are Christ's body. We are his temple. But you want to know something that's really interesting? The book of Matthew does not mention any of this. John does, but Matthew doesn't tell us about this original incident. And in today's passage, when the witnesses bring it up again, Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus meant something else when he said it. This could acquit Jesus. This could exonerate him. But Matthew wants us to know that even though he's being misrepresented, Jesus does not try to clear his name. He could have said, okay, hold on, you're taking those words out of context. He could have spoken up. He could have explained what he really meant. But instead, in verse 63, we hear that Jesus remained silent. But Jesus remained silent. What's going on, Jesus? Uh, are you pleading the fifth? Are you saying, yeah, I said that. And while you're taking my words out of context, yeah, it's true. I do have the power to destroy and rebuild your temple building. Or, Are you not interested in proving them wrong at all? Are you not looking for an acquittal? Maybe it's all of those things. And so when it comes time to defend himself, Jesus doesn't. He remains silent. Whatever the case is, Caiaphas, the high priest, is not happy with this silence. He wants to hear it in Jesus' own words. He wants this case to be airtight. And he's getting a little frustrated. So Caiaphas, the high priest, comes right out and he asks the question that everyone's thinking in verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Out with it, Jesus. Do you think you're the king of the Jews or not? Are are you the Christ, the anointed king, the, the Messiah, the Son of God? Are you a threat to the Romans? Are you a challenger to Caesar? And here's where a lawyer might have told Jesus, they got nothing. Take me out. It's it's not worth the time. Deny, deny, deny. But Jesus does not deny. Look instead at how Jesus responds. Jesus said to them, you've said so. Classic Jesus, you've said so. Your words, not mine, Caiaphas. But yes, what you're saying is true and actually more true than you know. Because Caiaphas, to quote the princess bride, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> you keep saying son of God, but, but I mean something different by that. Because remember Caiaphas and all the Jews thought that the Christ, the Messiah, would be a military man, a, a political savior, a, a king to drive out the Romans, to to conquer by the sword, but at the end of the day, just a man like like you and me. When Caiaphas asks Jesus if he's the son of God, what he means is, are you like a son to God? Are you you really close with him? And so Jesus decides to clear things up for Caiaphas. He, He drops this bombshell. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man Seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And immediately the room goes berserk. They go crazy. Verse 65, and the high priest, he tears his robes. And he said, he's other blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answer, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Imagine the scene, instant rage, angry shouting, blasphemy. The high priest is is ripping his shirt off, fingers wagging, foaming mouths, calling out for death. And then they beat him. They abuse him. They spit on him and slap him. Whatever Jesus said, it was far worse than they were expecting because Jesus here is doing a lot more than just saying he's the Messiah. Now this is on a whole nother level. Why are they so upset? What did Jesus say? Jesus is quoting from two Old Testament passages. First from Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. If you were here with us when we walked through the book of Daniel, this should be familiar. This is an image of power, of the Son of Man coming before God in the clouds of heaven and receiving a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so far, I don't see any blasphemy. Even the high priest would have said this passage is about the Messiah because everyone knows the Messiah is going to restore the kingdom of Israel forever. But Jesus goes a little further than that. He says, this son of man, this Messiah, you think he's just a man? You think he's just going to rule an earthly kingdom? Boy, have I got news for you. The Messiah does not just come before the throne of the Ancient of Days. The Messiah is actually right up there, right alongside him. Jesus calls us back to another Old Testament passage, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is saying the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, he is going to be at the right hand of power. Jesus is saying that he is that son of God. And not the son of God that they think he is, but the son of God, God himself. No ordinary man, but seated at the right hand, sharing the throne of God in heaven. And this is why the priests and the elders and the scribes are going nuts, because Jesus is doing no less than claiming divine authority, equality, with God. The irony is that if Jesus is just an ordinary man, then the priests are right. This is blasphemy of the highest degree. Friends, I give you permission, if I ever claim to be seated at the right hand of power like Jesus is, you can go ahead and and stone me. (laughs) But get this, if Jesus is right, if he truly is the Son of God, seated at the right hand of power, then he is not the one blaspheming. They are. See, they came in with their minds made up. They have blinded themselves to the possibility that the man they're brutalizing is none other than God himself. They think they're upholding the law. They think that this circus of injustice is doing God a favor. But in condemning Christ they're actually condemning themselves. When they spit on him, beat him, mock him, scorn him, and cry for his death, they are the ones who blaspheme the name of the Lord. And Bridge, this should serve as a warning to us. Because if we don't know who Jesus is, if we don't recognize him when he comes, we may find ourselves doing the same thing that the priests are doing here. If we don't know who Jesus is, maybe not to the point of physically beating our Lord and Savior, but if we don't know who he is, if we don't understand the kind of Christ he came to be, we might wake up one morning and realize that even though we might have the best of intentions, we are actually opposed to God. That's why we cannot lose sight of who Jesus is. and We we cannot forget what he came to do. Jesus is not just a rabbi, a revolutionary, or a role model. And Jesus didn't come to just teach or liberate or heal. No, Jesus is God himself. And he came to live and die and rise again to save us from our sins and from the wrath of God. Jesus knew who he was. And he could not deny his identity as the Christ, the King, the Son of God. And ironically, this is how Jesus truly denied himself. By refusing to deny who he is. He could have denied the charges. He could have said, I'm not the guy you're looking for. I'm no Messiah. I'm no threat. If he wanted to, he could have left that room scot-free that very day. This was Jesus' real trial. Would he deny his unique identity and mission as the Son of God, as the Messiah? Or would he deny himself and take up his cross and die? Jesus passed this test. Even as the priests and the elders shouted out his guilt, but the same test would be posed to someone else that night. Just outside the door, sitting with the guards in the courtyard, watching everything, is Peter. Good old Peter, following at a distance to see how this all ends. Will Peter take up his cross, deny himself, and die? Or will he seek to preserve his life and deny that he knows Christ at all? Peter says in verse 35 that even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But as Christ prophesied, Peter will fail the test. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. I recognize you. But he denied it before them all saying, I I, I don't know what you mean. That's right, Peter. Play dumb. Lady, you're, you're talking crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. The first denial. Verse 71, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Okay, Peter, this time come right out and say it. I straight up do not know who he is. The second denial. Verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Peter, who do you think you're fooling? You're not from here. You're, you're a Galilean. You don't say soda, you say pop. <laughs> Instead of diagonal, you say catty corner. And I, I think I heard you drop an Arkansas, a, a Greenwich, and an El Dorado. Peter's out. They got him. He's afraid of what they'll do. And so Peter denies Jesus a third and final time. Verse 74, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter has been walking with Jesus learning from him, eating with him, following him, and all of that was relatively easy to do when the stakes were small, when his life was not on the line, and when it seemed like no one could hurt him because Jesus was there, and Jesus can do anything. But now Peter is, is, is in the courtyard, and he's looking through the window, and he's watching his master get beaten, mocked, and spit upon and he's thinking, how can Jesus protect me when it looks like he can't even protect himself? And so when they ask Peter if he knows Jesus, it's deny, 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 to the point where he invokes a curse on himself. He swears on his life, on his mother's grave, that he doesn't know Jesus. And with that, the test is over. And Peter was left knowing that he failed. He failed Jesus. In Christ's darkest hour, Peter denied him not once, but thrice, just as he said he would. The book of Matthew has given us these two stories side by side, Jesus' trial and Peter's trial. And that's because Matthew wants us to ask ourselves, what will we do when our trial comes? Will we, like Jesus, deny ourselves and take up our cross? Or will we, like Peter, deny Jesus to save our own skin? Those are our two options. Deny ourselves or deny Christ. And right now, it's easy to convince ourselves that we got this. Just like Peter did a few verses up. It's easy to say, that that's not going to be me. I'll never deny you, Jesus, not not in a million years. I am all in. I am with you. Bridge, it can feel easy to follow Christ when all it costs you is maybe an hour of time on a Sunday morning. But what about when the trials come? What about when following Jesus starts to cost you? Your comfort, your career, your nice house, your kids' school friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your happiness? What about when following Jesus doesn't feel good anymore? When it feels like God's gone, absent, or powerless? When things are getting worse and worse and there's enemies all around, what about them? What will you do? My hope is that you'll be like Jesus. That you'll stand firm and go with Christ to the very end. That you'll deny yourselves and take up your cross. I know many brothers and sisters who have chosen this path, the hard path, who have suffered far more than I could ever imagine, all the way to the very end. And I've also seen many who have decided, you know what? That's not for me. It's been fun, but I'm good. Folks, Jesus has told us that things will only get harder. That there will be trials and tribulations and that the love of many will grow cold. Bridge, I am praying for you. I'm praying for you. And I hope that there's one thing that you know. If there's one thing that can get you through the coming trial, there's one encouragement that I have for you, it's this bridge, take time and ask yourself, who do I think Jesus is? Who is Jesus to me? Because how you answer that question tells me what you'll do when the trial comes. How you answer that question changes everything. If Peter had really got, really understood in his heart that Jesus was God himself, come to save us from our sins. If Peter had only remembered that the Jesus being beaten in that room, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he calmed the seas. If Peter had truly remembered that this Jesus could rescue him even from the grave and from death, then Jesus, then Peter would not have failed the test and he would not have denied our Lord. Because while that day Jesus looked powerless and beaten, Jesus is truly none other than the Son of God, God himself. And while that day the high priest called Jesus a blasphemer, Jesus now serves as our true high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father. And while that day the priest stood in judgment over Jesus, one day it's Jesus who will judge all of creation. Bridge, if this is the Jesus you know, if this is who you think He is, then when your trial comes, when you ask yourself who Jesus is to me, you can confidently say that He is your Lord and Savior, that He has saved you from sin and death, and that they can beat you. And bruise you and mock you and kill you and marginalize you and push you to the edge. But your Jesus has conquered death itself. And in him you have life eternal. Bridge, let's pray.